Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. The oceans are not a static thing. They change and shift over time. The ocean is home to lots of small creatures and they can have an outsized role in the global ecosystem and even climate. Plus, the way oceans change over time, from small swirling vortices to surprising freshwater vents, can help us understand the overall climate of the world and how it's changed in the past and may in the future. The ocean is many things to different people. A food source, a home, a means to enjoy a relaxing holiday, or perhaps vital corridor for trade. But one thing we can pretty much all agree about the ocean is that what makes the ocean the ocean is the fact that it's salty, salt water. That's what we define pretty much the difference between an ocean and an inland sea or lake, the freshwater versus salt water. It's a pretty comfortable definition. But one thing that challenges this definition, which has been expanded on in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, by researchers from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, including lead author Eric Katias and the direction of Associate Professor Henrietta Duali. Now, they've found something inside the oceans near Hawaii that challenges our understanding of what makes an ocean an ocean, that builds on a prior discovery in 2020. What these researchers have found is fresh water inside the ocean. And not just a little pocket of fresh water, large plumes of fresh water erupting out into the ocean. Now, this builds on prior research that had identified subsurface fresh water. Basically, we know about aquifers and groundwater. Now, imagine that, but underneath the ocean. The same thing can exist, and we've talked about it here on this podcast before. But in that instance, what if something pierces it, maybe like a, a geothermal vent, or maybe the, the area thins around it on the seabed? And then, because of pressure differentials, you may end up with a geyser, a plume of fresh water into the ocean. All that pressurized water squeezed by rock and heat escapes out this vent into salt water. This is something that not only has been theorized, but by using surface-toed marine-controlled source electromagnetic imaging, CSM imaging. They've actually taken pictures of these freshwater plumes lurking in the ocean in incredible high resolution. This is amazing to think about because it's really challenging our idea and our definition of what makes an ocean an ocean. The presence of freshwater and saltwater. Because this technique gives them a high resolution, they can actually estimate the volume of how much water is being ejected out in these large plumes. This is really important because in Hawaii, it has this underwater freshwater basins basically lurking underneath the surface of the seabed in the areas around Hawaii, which these researchers have previously published papers on and we have talked about here on this podcast. It's not the only place where we know this kind of thing has occurred, but certainly in Hawaii there are some. But now, using this certain type of imaging, they're able to actually track and estimate the volume of water leaking out of these pockets of preserved freshwater 
under the ocean seabed and see how it's actually impacting and changing the concentration of the water and even the ecosystems around Hawaii. Now, this name for this phenomenon is officially Submarine Groundwater Discharge, SGD, which is the leaking of groundwater on a coastal aquifer basically into the ocean. Now, this is important not just for people but also for sea life and algae but it depends on a lot of complex underlying geology, knowing exactly where they're going to pop up and sprout, much like finding a spring here on land, except it's much harder because you can't see telltale signs like runoffs, like creeks, rivers. Now, the thing is, the water that comes out here can be nutrient-rich with a low salinity, and this has a big impact on the surrounding food web because if you can pinpoint the location of these plumes, it gives researchers a chance to study the unique biochemistry that will occur in these areas because most of the surrounding ocean is oligotrophic it's got relatively low plant nutrients and got a lot of oxygen and that's what you normally see in these deep parts of the ocean but if you suddenly dump a lot of nutrient-rich fresh water into it well that would change a lot the types of creatures that could survive and thrive there and maybe there'll be some even more interesting life forms to discover there now by using this imaging technique and also measuring the resistivity salinity calculation they can actually build up a model of the volume now for example they found some pretty large blooms one of them contained around 87 percent fresh water offshore of the main hawaii island now that's interesting and when you calculate out conservatively it's around 10,720 cubic meters of fresh water erupting out into the ocean this is around four Olympic-sized swimming pools if you want a more realistic conversion. But this technique that they've used to identify these large plumes can be applied to all kinds of underwater aquifers and be used to track and understand how these aquifers may leak out in these submarine groundwater discharge events and lead to unusual bio-hotspots, much in the same way geothermal vents do, where you end up with, in a sea of one condition, a new condition arising with all kinds of strange life hyper-specialized to that location. That's probably the next avenue for study. Some great research published in Geophysical Research Letters by researchers Eric Atias and a large team of collaborators from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Freshwater plumes into the ocean, changing its salinity. Well, that's just one example of how the ocean might change over time. But researchers from the University of California, Santa Cruz, have published in the journal Science, analysis on how our ocean conditions could change over the past 35 million years. This is part of mapping the workings of what they call the global carbon cycle. In particular, the way carbon is removed from the island and deposited as carbonates. They do this by studying radioactive isotopes in marine sediments, in particular strontium isotopes. Now the lead author on this paper was Professor Adrian Payton from the Institute of Marine Sciences at UC Santa Cruz and working together with a large team of researchers which includes Olympus Griffith and others. Now they use the particular isotope of strontium because strontium is very similar to calcium so it can get incorporated 
into the calcium carbonate shells of all kinds of marine organisms. That makes it pretty useful as a way to track that concentration over time. Now, strontium comes in, in a couple of different flavors of isotopes, including radiogenic isotopes, ones that are produced by radioactive decay, and others which are stable isotopes. And because you have these two types of isotopes, you can observe the quantity differences between them over time. And the fact that there's radioactive decay isotopes in there as well gives you a nice ticking clock, much in the same way we do with radioactive carbon dating. Now, what they found is that the stable isotope ratio of strontium in the ocean has changed substantially over the past 35 million years. And it, it's still changing today. This is not a one-off change from some large geological event. It's basically happening in the past and is continuing to happen. The concentration of it, it's not in a steady state. So what's coming into the ocean and what's leaving don't match, as Professor Payton states. The strontium composition of seawater changes depending on how and where the carbonates are deposited. And that's influenced by changes in sea level and climate. Now, that's a pretty significant thing that she's outlined there because the fluctuation strontium isotopes reflect almost the effects of a global balancing shifting in different geological processes. That could be the weathering of rocks on the land, increasing amounts of hydrothermal activity, the formation of carbonate sediments in deep and shallow waters, or even nearshore marine environments that get inundated due to changing sea levels. And this is a pretty fascinating area. They're using the studying of this strontium isotopes to basically track the impact of large-scale climate-related changes on the environment. Now, carbonate dep deposition in the open ocean normally comes from marine plankton. Now, you can look at certain small creatures like goleolithophores or foraminifera, and their shells contain calcium carbonate mineral calcite. Now, in shallow water, not deep water, hard corals are much more abundant, and they build their skeletons from a different mineral of calcium carbonate, which is called aragonite. And this aragonite incorporates way more strontium than calcite does. So here you can see an example of different life forms using different concentrations of strontium. And you can track this overall population balance or changes in population balance by looking at the presence and concentrations of these isotopes. When corals form, they take out strontium from the ocean. And when they're exposed, such as the sea level changing, or weathering, you can actually, and the coral might die. The strontium washes out and leaches back into the ocean. So, see a change in shear level, a geological shift, well, you'll see more or less continental shelf exposed. And that means you see it reflected in the composition of this isotope in the water. That's an example of how you can use these isotopes and the concentration of strontium to sort of work out like a detective piecing together the pieces of what happened and what could be some large-scale impacts of climate change in the past and in the future. With more changes in the sea level coming up, and we can see more coral exposed as an example, you will see as a result change the strontium composition in the seawater. Now, this is all interesting because you can study the concentration or the life or the amounts of things like plankton or coral. But... It's important to remember that carbonate deposition is also part of the carbon cycle. Now, if carbon 
deposits back into the ocean. The ocean absorbs more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Carbonate deposition on global geological timescales is important for removing carbon from the overall system, sequestering it in a way, a natural form of carbon sequestration. If this interrupts, well, then it interrupts a global carbon cycle, and you might see an increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide. Because if there's nothing being sequestered, you end up with an imbalance where you end up with more carbon in the atmosphere. And you can see this based on the long-term dips and changes in the amount of carbonates as well. Because during ice ages that we've had in the recent past, or certainly the last 35 million years, you can see the changes in concentration as well, as more and less carbon is getting absorbed and more atmospheric carbon is being produced in the different phases of the cycle. So the simple matter of studying the concentrations of strontium and the varying isotopes and the ratios that they've found can help us piece together with detective work, climate and geological changes when where they may have happened, what that might have meant to life forms in deep water and shallow water like coral or plankton, and how that can impact the global ecosystem or capture signs of change in our global ecosystems and environments over time, whether that be things like ice ages or other geological climate events. This is a great tool that can be used to further analyse and study the climate of the past and how our climate might change in the future. This was published in the journal Science with lead author Professor Adina Paytan and collaborators including Elizabeth Griffith from University of Ohio State University and a large number of other collaborators from UC Santa Cruz. Now, you're probably aware of plankton, as we spoke about earlier. They're a pretty important part of the food web in most ecosystems, in the ocean. And another important part of the food web in both the ocean and in freshwater sources are called copepods. They can be found in almost every freshwater and saltwater body in the world. That's pretty impressive. These tiny crustaceans are also really, really abundant. If you were to take all the copepods in the world and put them together, their weight would be equivalent to about a trillion humans. That's a crazy volume of life. Their abundance then makes them critical to ocean health because they're pretty much the cornerstone of the food web and they play a really important role in a whole bunch of global cycles. That's because they serve a pretty important function. And these little tiny crustaceans are so small that you would have millions of them to fill a human. And as we spoke about before, if you were to add up all the copepods in the world, you would find the equivalent volume of a trillion humans. So we're talking about an insanely large number of them. There's a really good way of understanding their importance. Take the words of David Fields, who's a senior research scientist at the Big Laboratory of Ocean Sciences at Georgia Institute of Technology. That many organisms breathing oxygen Eating phytoplankton and producing waste is a major driver in how the ocean carbon cycle works. Despite their tiny individual size, because of the numbers, they can have a huge impact on the ecosystem. And that is a pretty remarkable thing. This tiny creature, the copepod, can have such an outweighed, outsized impact on the health of the planet. And that's what researchers like David Field and others have written in the Journal of Experimental Biology. 
and published a paper with lead author Dorsa Elmi and other authors including Donald Webster on how these tiny copepods live and interact with their environment. Because despite the number of them that we know of, how they behave and interact with their environments remains somewhat of a mystery. Now, even though there's insanely high numbers of them, they're pretty small and the ocean is mind-bogglingly large. So are even large freshwater bodies of water as well. So abundance alone is not enough to make them such a vital source for marine life, from everything from baby fish right up to whales. Because even though there's so many of them, the ocean is so big and they're dispersed all through it. So how do they become such a key part of the food web? Well, copepods tend to group together, and that's useful, but it makes it hard to study them. So these authors have published an example of how they've managed to find one such gathering place for copepods. And where they are inhabiting inside an ocean is a swirling small ocean current. Less than one inch, 25 millimeters in diameter. Now, this is crazy to think about in the giant ocean, huge in scale and size. A tiny little pocket of ocean current is home to an area where the copepods can congregate. Now, what they're doing to actually study this tiny little part of the ocean requires complex work, teaming up with engineers to even develop new types of instruments that can replicate these little vortices and allow control of their size and speed in the lab so that they can mimic what they've seen in the ocean and see how these copepods use them, these ocean current vortices, as a breeding ground and a gathering hub. Now, the copepods could detect these tiny little swirling ocean vortices and bring themselves to group around them. Inside a large area of water, they can sort of pick out this small ocean vortex. And the thing is, these small ocean vortices exist in the ocean, but they're so tiny compared to the scale of the ocean, and they can be ephemeral. They can disappear after the right ocean conditions that generated the vortex in the first place moves on to somewhere else. So we've known about potentially the existence of these small vortices, but this is the first time we've actually managed to replicate it in a lab and see how these little creatures behave with them. And the thing is, we scientists use this explanation of these small vortices all the time but like with many things in the ocean, we know it must exist because we can see the evidence of it, but we've never been able to study it in person because they're too hard to visualize, capture in data or find in the first place. But this is the first time they've actually made one in the lab, just long enough that you can study what's happening before it disappears again within seconds to minutes. And what happened in this particular study as well is they actually were able to observe the interactions of individual copepods with the single vortex and enable the scientists to understand how these vortices become such a key part to the behavior and life cycle of these tiny yet important creatures. Now, this is important work to understand tiny things that are happening in the ocean, both tiny movements of ocean currents and the tiny creatures that gather around them. But these things can have large-scale impacts on not just the ocean itself, the food webs and everything that feeds off them, but also the environment because of their contribution to absorbing oxygen and producing waste. There's some great research from the Bigelow Laboratory, ocean scientists from Georgia Institute of Technology, published in the journal Experimental Biology. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. 
freshwater appearing in our ocean to tiny crustaceans that can have an outsized impact, and the way we can track changes in the ocean over time. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.